Welcome to the 221st installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's podcast on family farming, sustainable agriculture, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. Besides raising crops in the hills of southeastern Minnesota, Bob Miro also works as a wastewater treatment operator for a neighboring community. Farming is about growing things, and treating municipal wastewater is, in a way, about killing off what can harm us. But a few years ago, Bob had an epiphany of sorts. It occurred to him that just as biology plays a key role in creating the kind of environment that allows him to clean up sewage using good bacteria, building the kind of healthy soil that is self-sustaining also requires biological processes. This has become particularly true to Bob and his wife Greta, now that they've transitioned some of their corn and soybean ground to being certified organic. Because they can't rely on chemicals to control weeds and provide fertility on those organic acres, the Miros must utilize biological activity to build soil that's self-reliant. They've been doing that by utilizing cover cropping to diversify their fields both above and below ground. But one drawback to organic production is that farmers often have to replace chemical weed control with mechanical tillage. That concerns the Miros, given that some of their fields in this part of the driftless region have slopes of up to 30%. Tilling the soil destroys its structure, resulting in erosion as well as the release of carbon. That's why they're looking into ways of creating an organic no-till system. They have plenty of experience with no-till, given that they've been using it on their conventional crop acres for the past 18 years. But how can they integrate such a system into their organic fields? One technique the murals have been experimenting with is a roller crimper, which is basically a large tube that they can roll across a cover crop stand of, say, rye during the spring, bending the stem in such a way that the plants die. This creates a mulch into which a cash row crop can be planted. The mulch suppresses weeds, while the plant material below and above ground feeds the soil's biology. A few years ago, the Miros downloaded plans for a roller crimper from the Rodell Institute in Pennsylvania, and, working with a local welder, built one. They, along with some of their neighbors, have been very happy with the results. They found the roller crimper provides excellent weed control, while providing the kind of cover that cuts erosion and builds soil organic matter. Bob and Greta talked about the important role biology plays in their farming operation during a recent Land Stewardship Project Soil Builders Field Day they hosted. Afterwards, Bob and I ducked into a shed during a major rainstorm and discussed how this family is making diversity a key part of their cropping enterprise. Well, one of the things that you had started out talking about, and and I've talked to you about this a little bit before, that I think is really, uh, really an interesting point. You have a. You also work in the wastewater treatment business uh, locally here, and that's all about biology. And you've kind of tied that in. That kind of helped you make, make maybe make you a little bit more aware than ever the importance of biology and soil, kind of thing. I think that's a really in, uh, good connection there. You know, yeah, I have to say that uh, I never, I never had that connection before with soil. And one day. Uh, you know, when I left the facility, I think I looked at a flyer from Land Stewardship Project, and it was understanding biology, and it was from Lance Gunderson from uh, Kearney, Nebraska, and I thought, biology in the soil. Wow, what have I, I haven't been thinking? So <laughs> I need to I need to go to that conference, and so that's what kind of started that is is realizing that there that the soil beneath our feet really is. Uh, it's uh, other than the, the inner ingredients that are there. It's mm-hmm. primarily biological. And I think that's, it sounds like it's become even more important to you in recent years as you, you're really looking at how can I build that soil health to the point where since you are transitioning, you, you do have organic acres and you're transitioning to organic, that you 
we're really trying to figure out how that soil can build its own fertility and become resistant to pests, that kind of thing? Is it kind of, I guess, become more self-reliant or self-sufficient? You know, that's one of the one of the key things that I think has really driven me is the fact that I see so many operations, including ours, at times when we feel that there's a recipe in order to get the end product. So we have to add so much of this, so much of this, and so much of this. And through different uh, different studies, one of them that really was was uh, really hit home was Elaine Ingham, and how the fact that. Really, everything that we need to grow a crop is in the soil. But learning how to unlock that is really what I'm after. That, that really is the key, is learning how to unlock all those things to help produce that crop. And uh, not only along with that, is we're going to produce a nutrient-dense crop because soil health, human health, are so closely related. So you did a really good job of showing some of the things you are doing to build soil health, and one of them is you've really gotten into these kind of diverse cocktail mixes of cover crops. I'd like you to describe maybe a couple things that you've been doing recently that you've done this year with cover crops, but also another interesting piece that I think really wowed a few people was this... uh, you believe in taking the diversity right into, for example, your cornfield. And you've been doing some interesting things there as well to, to uh, really kind of, I guess, live that rule that you're trying to live by, which is diversity, diversity, diversity. This spring, I just had decided that in order to incorporate diversity into there, I felt that, you know, I needed to have at least three different species growing, which... We have places where there's 10 growing, but I thought at a minimum that's really what I was after, is is learning that plants do work together through all their networks. And it's evident with, with any of the field trials that have been done, you know, the more monocultures we have, the more difficult it becomes to produce uh, any crops. But we find that with whatever we grow, we certainly want to have the soil covered at all times. That's really the key for us and have a green plant growing at all times, uh, along with uh, minimal disturbance. And at this point, we'd like to incorporate cattle uh, in our operation. We do have our pasture rented out. We are in pursuit and will figure out how to incorporate that into our cropping scheme to make it beneficial um, at this point. But yes, having that green living plant, a diverse cover, uh, is really our goal here. And it certainly does equate into the food that we eat, uh, how it is all linked together. It's the microbial activity in our gut. It's uh, similar to what's in the soil. Well, one of the things that I think may be almost counterintuitive to people is you've really come to believe that Plants don't, I think the conventional wisdom is plants always compete with each other for resources, moisture, you know, nutrients and all of that. But uh, you you really, through some of the workshops you've been going to and other people you've been talking to and, and, and the like, you've really come to believe that there are situations where we can bring them together and they can kind of work in, in as a team, <laughs> can kind of work in, in association with each other and really benefit each other. And I think the example that really struck me was you've got a situation with some corn I think you're transitioning it to organic and you plant you actually put in some soybeans planted some soybeans in there with it explain a little bit kind of the thinking behind that and that would that totally go I mean Midwest you're supposed to raise corn one year soybeans the next (laughs) completely separate they are not supposed to be associating with each other but I saw soybeans in there 
in, in that corn road, you know, and what, what's the thinking behind that or what's, what, well, what were you doing there? I guess there again, it's, it's the diverse, the interactions between plants. And so we know corn is a warm season grass. So what, what better complement to warm season grass than a warm season legume? That way they work together. And that was really what I was trying to promote, not necessarily that, you know, even if the soybeans went to seed, that's okay with me. They're, they're kind of an annual that's, you know, um, so in that regard, but I really wanted them plants to work together, and I thought, well, what better way to accomplish uh, even having more nitrogen available? Because keep in mind, the atmosphere we b breathe is 78% nitrogen, 21% oxygen. Mm -hmm. In theory, why is that nitrogen not getting in our soil? And it's through the practices that we that we partake in. And so anything that we can do to replenish that really is my goal. And so through, through using soybeans, when you pull out that plant, you can see all those nodules on there. You can break them open. You can see the, the pink color in there. So you know that, hey, I'm fixing nitrogen in the soil. That corn plant is utilizing that. All them interactions, the mycorrhizal fungi that's there, everybody's working together. And that really is, is what intrigued me. And matter of fact, I wish I would have put in more soybeans uh, to, uh, to aid the corn mm. in that. You feel, so you feel like this experiment's, you said you sometimes you've had some experiments that fail, like any good experimenter, but this one sounds like it's, it's working out pretty good? Yeah, I, I will do it again. Mm -hmm. I will certainly uh, uh, put corn or beans with corn mm -hmm. again this next year. I probably will up my rate a little bit more. I'd like to see a little bit more greenery underneath. And not only that, you know, if we think about that, um, so even early on in the season, you know, you really want to capture that solar energy that, that's coming. And you do that through the different heights and leaf structures of all them plants. And what better way to capture that sunlight through different different plants and, and different areas of the yeah. field. And so that's where even, you know, incorporating red clover or maybe it's Kira clover or some sorts of clovers, not in real high rates, but also just having those available there. Those are all a, a warm season legume. Well, that reminds me of something else you had talked about was you have been doing the Haney soil test, which is this kind of comprehensive test. It's not like just testing the traditional test of testing your N, P, and K. You're looking at the overall biology that's kind of going on with your soil there, and it sounds like you've been seeing some pretty positive results as far as your organic matter. But the one thing you pointed out was it can help you really pinpoint exactly how much nitrogen, for example, is available, whereas the traditional soil test undermeasures that so that you're tempted maybe to add more nitrogen than the crop really needs. But it, I think you quoted like some differences there. It was almost like double, I think, or something. But talk about that differences that you saw sure. uh, with that test. So, so a couple of things within the Haney test is they call it the Sobita test, which is the respiration rate um, of the microbes in the soil. And that's really one one piece of that puzzle. Now, there's a lot of pieces, and, and uh, that's one of them that I look at. And the Haney test, for example, I used a on a field a year or so ago on a conventional field. I sent my sample in. The respiration came back at about 80 parts per million. Mm -hmm. And so this year when I, this is not the same field, but on a, on a similar area that's had covers and plants growing the last two years, it's not been tilled, that respiration is 240. So it's several times higher. And not only that, we're building the natural products of potash, which is plant material, unlocking phosphorus that's in the soil. 
uh, to aid the following crop. And, you know, along with that, nitrogen, which is attached right to carbon, mm -hmm. as one increases, carbon increases, so does nitrogen. So uh, as, as days go by and, and plants mature, and, and uh, that's really what I'm after, is not to put any fertilizer on those particular crops. Now, is that always the case? Not necessarily, but we're working in the right direction. And, you know, that, that cost savings, you know, the Haney test is not, what I would say, inexpensive, but you can do it on a larger area, and it gives you a lot better idea of where a gauge of your, where your soil health is at. Mm -hmm. With that, compared to the traditional soil test, it will... Uh, show you, you know, a definite cost benefit, which maybe you want to use that to help promote another soil health practice on the farm. And it really was free, in essence. Plus, you got the benefit of building carbon, which is really equal to resilience, right. in my mind. You also face, as an organic farmer, the bugaboo that a lot of organic farmers face, which is, since they can't rely on chemicals to control weeds, they're re relying on tillage. And that sounds like it really bothers you, and I guess I'd like you to talk about why that bothers you, but then talk about what your, the thing you've been experimenting with, the roller crimper and, and the like, that you're, you're been experimenting with to, to try to get away from that, and you said you, you made it clear your goal is to someday be using no-till organic, which would be, it's like the brass ring. That's what a lot of people are after with this system where you're combining the chemical-free, building organic biology of the soil, but also you're not exposing that soil to tillage. What I'm really after is to balance that carbon to nitrogen ratio. Like I had mentioned, the microbes in the soil are an eight to one ratio, eight carbon, one nitrogen. They're gonna consume up to 16 parts of carbon just through respiration. You know, that's their diet, just like our diet. My whole goal is actually to till with plants. Uh, so whether that's, you know, radish or turnips or uh, just having a, a diverse, and I mean that in, in different levels of root systems in there, but also keep in mind that we're trying to manage that microbial mass so that we can grow that microbial mass, yet not disturb it. Because as soon as we disturb that through, uh, maybe, maybe it's a chemical application, which there's a lot of unknowns about the chemical applications at this point, mm -hmm. but through the physical disturbance, we, we really burn the house down with carbon. And so a lot of energy went in to grow that, and we took it away real quick because it was a, it was a vision that we thought we needed to have a clean crop. Mm -hmm. The eyesight that, that I guess I'm trying to to show is that you can really grow and be have a successful crop not necessarily look perfect in the field but knowing that it's a healthy crop and that your microbes are fed in the soil and can and stay in business and, and be able to weather the the big rain events and all these um, almost unnatural events that are happening you know they're so severe and so that's really the whole intent is to be able to build resilience in our operation through the function of plants and what they do and how we understand them and so one of the things you're doing is uh you have built this roller crim crimper so our, our journey started with uh meeting jeff moyer from the rodale institute and him actually having some success with uh 
uh, organic no-till, and it was just a mere discovery that they happened to drive some rye down and in a field, and it just made this huge mulch, and there was some beans in there, and they came up, and they didn't have any weed pressure, and so at that point, that's when I think Jeff had decided that, you know, we need to come up with a way to, to crimp this, crimp rye. We can do any crop when it's in its vulnerable stage of making seed, you know, or right prior to seed making, and so um, that really interested me, and from that point on, uh, through his work, they developed the roller crimper, which basically is a large tube that has uh, paddles that are tipped a certain angle, rolled around a, another, around the tube, mm -hmm. that really, in essence, just you can roll it down the field just like a big log, and it'll roll that crop over, and it will not necessarily cut the, the stems of rye off or whatever crop you want to roll, but actually crimp the stem so that it terminates the crop. Mm -hmm. And you can do it with many crops, many crops. They've had a lot of success. Now, that's in monocultures, but it does work well. And so at that point, uh, Greta and I decided that that was something that we would like to experiment with, and we thought we could maybe try and build one. There's some locals that uh, certainly aided with that. So we got the plans from Rodale Institute um, out, in, out in Pennsylvania, and um, I shared them with our local... Welder in, in Mabel, Minnesota, and from that point on, it was all put together and it was tried out back in 2016. I thought it was a very su successful crop. Um, had very little weed pressure. Had a great mat covering the soil. Biology, the the, the all the uh, all the critters, spiders, mites, all that stuff were having a heyday under there, and the beans came up right up through, and mm -hmm. it was a beautiful crop, and and uh, it worked really well. We didn't have to spray any any chemicals to control anything, so uh, we felt we were working with nature. What was the process for, and when you planted the crop and everything? The rye would have been planted at about, uh, I think it was September 13th. Uh, in the f in 15, mm -hmm. and then um, that was planted at about three and a bushels to the acre, maybe just a, a touch over three bushels per acre, and then the anthesis stage, which, which comes in this area around the first of June, was when it was rolled down, and from that point, I think I had mentioned we had a windstorm; it blew a lot of it down. I grew impatient. I decided, well, I need to plant it today. And so I just went ahead and rolled it. It was an anthesis stage. It was just starting. So I went ahead and rolled it down. And then I planted soybeans in that crop at about 100 and I think it was about 185,000 seeds uh, per acre. You had to go slow. And uh, the beans, most of the beans got in the ground. And there was some that even laid on top of the ground or in the rye. And but you know that them seeds stay nice and cool and damp. Mm -hmm. And even though they didn't necessarily make it into the soil, they still germinated and came up through. Mm -hmm. So, and we harvested that crop uh, near the end of uh, October that year. And I think we averaged around 50 bushel to the acre. We were happy with that. It was an organic trial. We, we felt we captured a good premium for them. Beans uh, went well. We thought it was enough, enough success that this next year we're going to try organic no-till corn uh, with some hairy vetch and rye and then obviously a mix of covers. I think we had nine different uh, species of covers mixed in there at real light rates. 
um, just to give some diversity. Some will overwinter, some will not. But at least uh, our goal is to have that diversity and hope elude any problems in the spring. But then again, that's yeah. our plan. Would you, would you roll then? You would roll it and implant the corn? Yes. Is that how you do that? That's correct, yep. It'll, it should go the same way be to roll it down 15 feet. It's a six roll, 30 inch. Yeah, we'll, we'll roll it down and follow right behind. The only thing is, you know, it's going to be really hard to see maybe where we can see the 15 feet, but we won't always see. So I'm thinking about maybe I need to make a full marker for the center of the corn row on the marker. At least that way I can at least stay close. Yeah. Try and keep my rows, you know, close and symmetrical as possible. So we'll see what happens. Well, I love that idea. You're protecting the soil, the surface, you know, on, which is particularly important on these hilly acres. But you're also not burning up that carbon by exposing it, like you said, burning the house down by exposing that. Uh, soil and you're building it in the long term it sounds like you're kind of getting you know several things at once with that using that kind of uh, living mulch type system the that living mulch system that is it's just similar to our skin and it really is the protection barrier from all the critters out there that 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 cause disease and so if we can keep that there that level of protection is really our goal here Stewardship Project's work related to soil health, see the Soil Builders page at landstewardshipproject.org. There, you'll find resources and videos, as well as other podcasts featuring farmers and others who are working to build soil health profitably. If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org, or you can call 612-722-6377. Thanks to Laura Borgendale, Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSP. Thanks for listening.